Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We have got a great show for you today. We just returned from an amazing weekend at the Tennis Hall of Fame in Newport, Rhode Island. John Isner soldiered through a brutal heat wave, beating Alexander Bublik in the final at the Hall of Fame Open and taking home the Van Allen Cup. But the grandest award of the weekend was granted to Mary Pierce, Yevgeny Kafelnikov, and Lee Na as they were enshrined in the Tennis Hall of Fame. And we had our fair bit of fortune as well, speaking with five Hall of Famers. And we are happy to announce we have the first of those interviews for you here today. Steve Flink is one of a handful of journalists who wear the emerald ring, proclaiming them as members of the Tennis Hall of Fame. He has written for World Tennis Magazine, Tennis Week, and Tennis.com. He's offered commentary on ESPN and CBS Radio, and has been a statistician for all the major networks. He's authored several books on the history of tennis, and is one of the foremost experts on Pete Sampras. But perhaps most important, Steve Flink has been a consistent fixture on the tour for 50 years, attending over 140 Grand Slams, and truly having a front seat to the open era. Steve's going to offer an inside look into the machinations of the tennis press room. Tell us which former Hall of Famer he thinks could have gone toe-to-toe with the big three. And let us know what he thinks is the greatest tennis story of the modern era. We met up with Steve at the official tournament hotel as the induction weekend was in full effect. First of all, we're in the children's play room in the lobby of the Viking Hotel, the Hotel Viking, just down the street from the Tennis Hall of Fame. How many times have you stayed here? (laughs) Well, about 23, 24 times. I mean, 24 stays at the Viking, that that ain't bad. No, no, it's a great hotel. And it's so, so close to the facility it's a nice easy walk this is can't, the, can't beat it this is the ground zero for the hall of fame induction weekend and the tournament uh, the gentleman you just heard is by far the most prolific living tennis writer uh and journalist steve flink and a hall of fame inductee isn't that right that's right yeah 2017 2017. Yeah. And so it's you and Bud Collins, would that be fair to say? Oh, there's a few others. Not many, though. There's that Al Laney and Allison Danzig from the back in the 20s and 30s, and New York newspaper men, Herald Tribune and Times, and Gianni Clarici of Italy when came in. So there's a, oh. I think I counted when I went in, there's about nine or ten of us that are media, writer, broadcaster types. But that shows you how, how few, and it, that's that, why I'm so grateful to be in. I mean, to be in... That means you've done a lot in tennis, um, and, and certainly it's great to have you on our show. Well, I'm happy to be here. Can't get enough of Under Review? We've got your answer. Coming up very shortly, we will be releasing my interview with former world number one and the newest member of the Tennis Hall of Fame, Yevgeny Kofelnikov. In it, we talk about rolling craps in Monte Carlo, golfing in Moscow, and the current field of hard-hitting Russians. It's a great episode, and we're pre-releasing it exclusively to our Patreon supporters. So to get access to this episode, and more importantly, join the Under Review family, please go to patreon.com slash underreviewtennis and sign up. For as little as $2 a month, 
You'll get access to never-before-heard episodes like Kofelnikov's and also help to keep the lights on and under review. Again, the website is patreon.com slash underreviewtennis, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash underreviewtennis. Thank you. Now let's get back to our interview with the Hall of Famer tennis writer Steve Flink. So in an effort to keep things moving, we do a five-set format. Our first set is where we talk about what you are up to. This is our off-the-court report. Wimbledon just finished. Uh, what's your schedule? You come straight here? When, yeah, I went home for a few days. Uh, I'd written a wrap-up piece from Wimbledon on site on Sunday night. And then another Who'd one. Who would you file that with? For ten- Tennis.com, the tennis magazine website, which is under the auspices of the Tennis Channel. So... Um, yeah, I was happy to be able to file that night, but it was hectic. The match ended so late, nearly five hours, as you know, and then scurrying around, getting to the players at the press conferences, and then finally being able to sit down and write. But uh, I was able to do another one trying to put it in a historical perspective for Wednesday. I did that from home because I flew back on Monday. So we had a lot to digest there. And then you blew right down, and you blew right up to Newport. Right, yeah, I came on Friday morning. And what do you do here? Well, here I'll write something. I'll do a piece. I've done that every year since for a long time, writing on the ceremony, just, you know, my impressions. And and you participate as a member. Yes, yeah, it's not what I do in the sense of nice enough to be able to sit up there with the other Hall of Famers and watch it from a different vantage point, which is a pleasure. And then I'll write something about the, all the speakers, and it, it's going to be a great lineup this year. Man, it sure is. Let me tell you, uh, Newport is absolutely heating up, literally and figuratively. You cannot order Adele's or get clam cakes without bumping into a Hall of Famer and the ceremony itself. Um, our former guest, uh, Nick Terry, who's a Hall of Famer, will introduce Mary Pierce. Larry Stefanki, who is Yevgeny Kofelnikov's coach, will be introducing him. And the head, the newish head of... IMG Tennis, Max Eisenbud will be introducing Lee Na. You know, we're certainly looking forward to that. Now, what about you? When you finish Newport, do you sort of lock down in Westchester until the Open, or will you go to D.C.? Will you go to Atlanta? Do you, do you I'm have going, any? I'm going to Montreal. Because I'm going okay. to go through the last three or four days of Montreal this summer, which I'm looking forward to. And, and otherwise, I'll be back. I'll be writing pieces from home. And then before you know it, the Open will be here, and I'll be heading out there every day. And do you have any um, extreme, uh, interesting interview lined up in Montreal that... No, no, no. I'm really going there just to cover it. I mean, it cover could it. be that something will serendipitously happen, but I don't, I don't, I don't think so. That's not the plan. You, so you don't, like, line up uh, an exclusive with... You know, a Nick Kyrgios or a, or a I will, Bianca Andreescu way in advance. Uh, no, no, okay. not usually. Sometimes I, I also will do some interviews over the phone, which I think is very helpful because uh-huh. player might be on site, I might be at home, and then it gives you both of you more flexibility on the timing. And I have, a, off, I have often found, interestingly enough, because I know you, might, you may feel differently with your podcast, but I've found that with players, as long as you, especially if you know the people, that the phone interviews are, are, are just as good for me as, the, as sitting with them face-to-face. Really? Yeah, I, I, I've been surprised by that. I didn't think so earlier in my career, but over time I changed my perception of that. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Now let's move into our second set. This is our on-the-court report. And um, listen, I mean, what, what do you say about Wimbledon? <laughs> 
Well, Craig, what I would say is we've been spoiled. I've been to every Wimbledon except for three since 1965. And somehow we keep getting epic after epic there, more than at any other major event, because you had Borg, Mackinac, obviously there was Stan Smith and Nastassi in 72 that was a gem, and then you go forward, and obviously we had the, the Rafa, Roger in 08, and then the next year immediately, 16, 14, and the fifth, Roger and Andy. But listen, so how many of these can, can we get? And, but, and but, the, but hang on a second. So I consider you one of the foremost uh, experts on Pete Sampras. Yes. I mean, yes. this guy doesn't get mentioned in no, one no. thing you just said, because he, he blitzed everybody at Wimbledon. Exactly, exactly. The he f- would have benefited. It would have, it would have <laughs> historically, it would have helped him to have had one of these, but he was just too good for those guys. And granted, there were a couple of scares, like the Rafter final in 2000, but even then, he won in four sets in the final. Or, I mean, did this- have a great one with Gorin in 98. That was five sets. It was only five set Grand Slam final he ever played. What was the score in the fifth? Six two in the fifth. I yeah. mean, Pete so even blew, then, even Pete then, blew everybody out of the he water. He did. He did. People blew everybody out of the water. No, but see, you're on to a different argument. I, I fully believe that he he would compete very well against these guys today, and that he at his best on any hard court or hard court grass indoors would. I'd see him winning a, a career series against Djokovic, Nadal, and and Federer. That's just my view at his best and. There's never been a server quite like him. So, but that's a different argument. We're talking. We're, well, we're, we're talking going. about matches but, but versus, matches versus um, players. Did you learn anything interesting during the tournament that you we, we don't know? Did you see anything that kind of has resonated with you that you can't stop thinking about? Uh, no, I mean, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say so. I would. I. I I mean, but Coco Golf when, when she came through qualies, was that immediately onto your radar? Oh, definitely. And of course, once we saw the draw, and then she was going to play Venus in the first round, what could be more of a dream matchup <laughs> than Venus who won five, and five Venus times played, there? And Venus played lousy. Um, but nonetheless, you still got to go beat. You still got to go win oh, the match. Oh, yeah, and she had to fend her off at the end. Venus is coming back at her heart at the end of the second set, saving match points, looking as if she might steal the match in a way and just impose her will, and it didn't work. And, and where were you? Were you sitting in the media center uh, looking yeah, at monitors? Well, or? No, I tried to get out to the courts as much as you possible. Do. Yeah. So I, you were I, in the seats. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's you know what? It's, it's a... Uh, a lot of the people daily, who, depending on their deadlines, they can't help it because they've got to keep filing several times a day and they don't have the time to do that. That's not the way I work and my columns are spread out over different days. So I'm, I'm almost always at, at for, court side. Okay, by the way, for our listeners, the media center is alive and amplified, particularly those first few days of the tournament. And it's hard to quite know what anyone's doing. They're looking at monitors. They're looking at statistics. They're running to press conferences. Quite often, a lot of the writers never see the court. You're, no, you're right. But that and, some, and can that, you explain that? Because that is no, just the most bizarre friggin' thing. No, I I think some of them just get some writers just get more comfortable. As they say, some of them do have these constant deadlines that are staring them in the face, and I understand that. Others just, I guess they just get so comfortable with the screen there, and I, I, I don't understand it because... It's corny, I, I can tell you this, that yeah. at the end of Sampras Rafter, which was his history-making, 13th major, breaking the Emerson record, a lot of them were in the press room watching instead of right out there. And same with Nadal Federer in 08. So I, I can't explain that. I and, really can't. And quite often, the sound is off in the media center. So you can't feel 
what is going on. Yeah, you yeah. Cannot. In fairness to a lot of them, they most of them will have their headset on so they can they can hear it, but it's still not the same. And if you're on site, I, I've always felt. I mean, I don't want to question the judgments of a lot of my colleagues. Some of them have their reasons, I'm sure, but sure. I, I could never quite understand that because also it's not a long journey from the press room into the media seats in center court Well, it's, it's bizarre, and I think it affects the writing. I'm not gonna, it may. It I'm may. Not gonna indict. I'm not gonna indict anyone yeah. today. Uh, I, there's some hot button topics. Sure. I wanted to zip through them for this on the court report, and then we're gonna move on. Sure. So, um, what are your sources telling you about this ATP fiasco? Um, you know, Novak seems to have backed Justin for the Kermode job, and this mess seems to continue. Can you speak to that? Well, there was, uh, you probably heard. I mean, he, he was obviously queried about that at, at, uh, in his press conference at Wimbledon. And the first day, he said he would look into it a little bit more about what the judge had to say uh, regarding Justin. But... Then the next time he, he, he realized that he couldn't have a sort of a daily discussion during the middle of the most important tournament of the year about politics. So, he shut it down. Yeah, and, and, and understandably so. But it's, it's, uh, you hear lots of things from different sources. I don't know where it's headed, but I, I think it, it's gonna eventually sort itself out. I, there seem to be a lot of divisions among the players. I'm sure you've heard that yourself. And there, there are different camps, different schools of thought. You know, Chris did a great job, according to a lot of people, and this caught people by surprise when there was this movement to, to oust him. But I, I didn't hear much more at Wimbledon other than what Novak said in his press conference. Um, Davis Cup, do, do you have? did you learn anything interesting about what this back end of the year Davis Cup... Uh sort of tour de force week in Spain is gonna like look and feel like? Well, I just, the, what I heard, what I just hear more and more is, is, is sort of a, a, a disillusionment and a uh, sadness about what's happened to it. And I, I think you throw in the fact that Labor Cup is now getting a slightly more exalted status and you have the ATP, their own event at the start of the year and it's too bad because I think the public is gonna be so confused and Davis Cup is just gonna look like it's one among many instead of the team event. And I, 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 I just hear more and more criticism of, of the new format. I, didn't, I don't mind the idea of one site, but I think they took it, they went way beyond that, obviously. Well, it seems like they sold it. <laughs> yeah, 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 absolutely. That, that, you know, I, I think there was always a good case. Jack Kramer used to always push for one site and, and move it around every year to a different location, but you would stay with best of five, You'd probably have more teams involved. You'd you'd, you'd lengthen the the uh, duration of it. It's it's too bad. I it think feels like I think they're off to a, Let's put it this way: before they've even started, they're off to a slightly rocky start. Um, have you had any meaningful or interesting discourse with Nick Kyrgios? Never, never. Uh, I mean, I would love to talk to him someday, but I have to say, Craig, that uh, my feeling about Nick is that. He hasn't really earned the right to be spouting off the way he has. He, this, if you start, if you, if you won your share of majors and you've established yourself that way and you're a bona fide, authentic, great champion, sure, okay, if you want to take a shot at Novak Djokovic or Rafa Nadal or Roger Federer. But for him, from his, from his vantage point to be doing, I found it pretty distasteful, to tell you the truth. I mean, I know it, it, every, a lot of people in the sport loved it because he was so outspoken and controversial. But when you look at... Who it's coming from and his lack of professionalism 
that he's displayed so far. I, I, I had a problem with that. And the tanking. And the tanking, is, And the tanking yeah. is unacceptable. Yeah. The problem with Nick is Nick goes out and wins tournaments, you know, every six months, so. <laughs> but his attitude is so often negative. I mean, we, we really wish, and Nadal's right. Nadal said, you know, if he would just play like he did against him on the center court and, and earlier in the year in Acapulco, fine. He could be a great player. He could be contending for majors. But he should play that way every time he steps on the court, and he does not do so. Um, Bernie Tomich, have you had any interesting discourse with him? No, I mean, no. I, Ber Bernie, I've seen, I, just in the press conferences, he's another enigma. He doesn't have Nick's talent, but it looked like he had the, 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 the a solid base to be He's a, a mega talented yeah, guy, man. Yeah. The way oh, he yeah. plays tennis. I thought in 2012, he was surely a future major champion. Yeah. And it was all, the whole package was there. Great feel, incredible feel for the ball. and. And yes, he is gifted. Not quite in the way that Nick, in the sense that Nick, with that sir, with those first and second serves and the explosiveness of his game, different. He, he can just ride his own ticket. Bernie Tomich, though, has got like McEnroe-ish. He does feel. He and, does. And he has a very quirky. He's got a unique style. Um, incredible fortnight. What do you say about Wimbledon? You just closed the show on. Well, you always hope. I'll never forget going into when Patrice Clerc, it was tournament director in the early 90s at the French Open. Yep. And I went in and did an interview with him on the final day. And it was right after Celis and Graf had had their epic 10-8 in the third for Monica in the women's final. And Courier was going to play Peter Quarter in the men's final. And he huh. said, look, he said, the rest of the tournament is important. But with the lasting impression for all of the people, you, you have to have a great final because if you don't, you know, they'll, they'll forget about all the rest. And, and it was interesting. He was, he was just talking about the significance and how every tournament director hopes for that. Well, look what happened here. I mean, Incredible. first of all, we even got a nice four set, pretty enticing semifinal with Rafa and Roger in the semis. But then to follow it up with that Djokovic-Federer clash was just stupendous. And, and, and Serena pulling through the tournament yep. and Simona Hollop playing, saving her best tennis for last. She did. She did. Was awesome. Yeah, I think Simona loved the fact that most people were selling her short, Craig. A lot of people thought, okay, Simona's won the French and she's had a great Wimbledon, but how is she going to beat Serena on grass? She's one and nine against her for her career. And this is Serena's moment and this one she's primed for and this is going to be number 24. And she just, I mean, to go through... Two sets, break her four times, never lose her own serve. Serena got 68% of her first serves in, and it didn't matter. It was a great performance. I thought Simona Hollow played much bigger tennis than I've ever seen her play before, and she didn't simply just retrieve. Serena made a lot of unforced errors, but Simona served and played a lot oh, bigger. Oh, no, she did. She did. I agree with you. No, her serve is improved. She's getting in first serves down the tee at 107, 108 miles an hour. She's five foot big three, enough, man. Yeah, big <laughs> enough to win some free points with it. She played very aggressively and yet made three unforced errors across two sets. 100%. Performance of her life. Performance, yeah. Simona Hall, uh, Wimbledon champion. And Serena gave her full marks, which I loved this time. There were, you know, no excuses, and she really lauded her, and she went around the net and hugged her and made that joke in the presentation about Simona playing out of her mind, but it was a, it was a compliment. It was a genuine compliment. And, and to that point, uh, Serena had a very awesome tournament, and she had a good time oh, she with was. Andy she Murray was. playing the mix. Listen, that was laudatory, the fact that she agreed to play the mix with Andy. I'm sure a part of her would much rather not have had any doubles in the way and keep put her full energy and resources into winning the singles. But, and she, but she knew Andy was looking for a partner, and she agreed to do it, and she did it with real spirit. I mean, she obviously enjoyed herself immensely. Do you have any interesting opinions about the way Wimbledon seeds the tournament? 
I, you know, I, I wasn't wild about the idea of swapping Rafa and Roger. On the other hand, I was really happy that it turned out that they were in the same half of the draw anyway. So it became, you know, it was it was irrelevant in the end. They they met in the semis and settled it there. I, I generally don't like share a lot of opinions on the show. I like to learn what you think, but I, I generally find the quirkiness of what the All England Club. <laughs> does is kind of a fun little Refreshing. wrinkle. Well, yeah. it's a wrinkle. It's, well, a, it's you know, an interesting listen, wrinkle in the... It is, and in fairness, Craig, they have the right to do it. I mean, the other majors play it safer and decide and don't do it. But well, they're I, not a federation. They're a club. Yes, right, <laughs> right. But they try to... They you know, they have a formula. They have grass court... They feed all the grass court results into the computer, so they have a system, and they're entitled. And uh, But I uh, obviously, you're always going to irk the... I mean, Rafa had, was inevitably going to be a, a, a little uh, overwrought about that. Looking into the hard court season, let's just start with the women. Um, is there anyone that you think may uh, outshine the field? Frankly, no. I think what we've seen is the, the inability of most of these great... Now, what was nice was Osaka backed up the Open and won Australia. Good for her. She's been in a bad slump since, but least it was two majors in a row. Excuse me, she's been in a tragic slump yeah. since. Well, that isn't the word. I mean, <laughs> it's been a wicked fall. Yeah, it has. I think she'll pull it. She's too good a player not to pull herself together. and It will happen. But I'm saying that we're not seeing the sustained excellence of the top players the way we once did. The great thing about the Everett Navratilova era and those eras is that fans look forward, just like they do now, obviously, with this in incredible, prodigious trio of Federer, Djokovic, and Nadal, that they were gonna constantly see these showdowns among top players. And so I don't really have a sense that somebody's gonna take off over the summer and dominate and then go on and win the Open. I'm interested to see how much Serena will play and how much effort she'll put into some of the other tournaments that could pave the way it's for her crazy that she could go through without playing any Well, matches. she said after the French that she was considering, they brought it up to her and she said, well, I do have the time, maybe I will play a grass court event, but didn't do it. And I think that was a mistake, frankly, a big mistake. I mean, on the men, it's, it's jokers to lose. At the Open? Yeah, I mean... I think so. I think so. I mean, you know, he, it's a strange thing because Novak has, should, have, should have won a lot more U.S. Opens than he has. And I, I, he's had some bad luck in New York when you think about it. But he's, he's very good at defending titles. He, he won it deservedly a year ago. He's really honing in on the magic 20 that Rogers got in majors. And Novak now only four back. And... Yeah, I think he's the clear, he'll be the clear favorite, regardless, by the way, of how he plays in uh, Montreal or Cincinnati. That's not going to matter. Moving into our third set, this is the portion of our show where we talk about your career. Um, I know you were uh, born and bred New York City. Well, actually, born in California. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, I didn't have it wrong. Then, yeah, then I lit, moved to Connecticut and eventually New York. But you, yeah, I have it essentially right because I've spent a lot, of, a lot of my life in that New York area and living in the city as well for a large chunk of it. Where does your tennis story begin? Yeah, tennis story begins with my father took me out to Wimbledon. I was 12 and a few days away from my 13th birthday, and I became fixated and obsessed with the sport. Very, it was just something so appealing to me about those grounds and wandering the outside courts, and I watched Rafael Osuna, who had won the 63 U.S. Nationals, playing in a match against Ingo Booting, this German, and I just got enraptured with the sport. So from that day forward, following it in the newspapers, back in New York, going to Forest Hills, and it grew out of that. So by the time I was 15, just a few years later, I had this goal of becoming a tennis reporter. I was very fortunate. Started to meet a lot of players, met Bud Collins, 
it grew out of that. And so I ended up starting my full-time career in 74 at World Tennis Magazine. And, and, and that's Gladys Heldman, uh, first of all, the founder of World Tennis Magazine, but really was a crucial promoter of women's tennis and was completely instrumental in the organization of the Virginia Slims Tour which was the pre precursor to the WTA. And that's uh, Gladys. Yes, right. She had sold it by then. Uh, oh, so, is that right? So, but she was still very involved, and we worked a lot together on instruction pieces and things. But she had sold it, which was to my good fortune, because they moved offices from Houston to New York, so I was able to start my career working out of the city that I knew so well. Hold on a second. Did you ever have a different job? Have you always no. been a... No, You've been always. a tennis writer from the day you began uh, working. Yeah, exactly. Oh, come on. No, that's what I set out to do, and that's what I've done. And it's funny because I had an uncle when I was growing up who said, you know, it's a nice goal to be, that you had to be a write tennis, and that's terrific, but you really should be thinking about being a sports writer, which was actually not bad advice, but I dismissed it. I didn't listen to him, and then he was the first to congratulate me when I got going. But no, I've been very fortunate. No, it's been nothing but tennis, really even beyond those 45 years since I started breaking in a few years before that. Nothing but tennis, man. Nothing. That is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't mean I don't you have- You never had to go get a job at a restaurant? No, you no, never, no. Nothing. No, I mean, no. Nothing. I, no, nothing. Incredible. That was it, that was it. And how many books have you written? Oh, I've had a couple of, I've written a couple of books, uh, you know, on the greatest tennis matches of the 20th century and then the, the greatest of all time. And I'm currently working one on a book on Pete Sampras right now, a career biography that'll come out next year. With his cooperation? Yes, yes. Uh, what is the greatest tennis story that's never been told? <laughs> Craig, you're throwing some curveballs at me. I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, uh, you'd have to lead me into that territory. I, I, I can't presume to, have, to be able to answer Top that. Top three. Well, when you say never, what do you mean? Unheralded, unknown? What What are we talking about here? However you want to answer it, it's 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 open floor for you. What well, you I think that I you know I think I think I think the story of the Williams sisters that 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 will someday would would, would be worthy of a movie when you consider where they came from on the on those courts in Compton. Well, that, and that's up, coming, and that's yeah, coming. Right. King Richard is happening. Right. Well, it, it should it should because they, we'll probably never have another story quite like that one again. And uh, that story, I don't know. that story is that good. I think so. I mean, two sisters, impoverished background, a father who knows nothing about tennis, but learns about it, looks at magazines, and eventually gets them to Rick Meiji at his academy. It's, it's an extraordinary story. I can't think of one that really measures quite up to that as a as a tennis story. Wow. Richard Williams and his daughters, the greatest story that we, you know, that hasn't really been. Not it hasn't been fully told. That's why there, 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 there should be there, there should you know it needs yeah. to be needs to be fully put in perspective. We've sort of taken it for granted. You uh, chronicled Pete Sampras's career extremely significantly. I feel like you're a Pete Sampras expert more so than anyone I know, really. Well, I think that's true. I don't mean that arrogantly at all, but I just had a particular appreciation for what he brought to his craft, and I know why. That well, because I thought that, you know, they're underappreciated. Andre Agassi was the, 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 the charismatic performer who really captured the imagination of the public. He would get all the letters. He would get all the attention. He would get all the public acclaim. And Pete just went quietly about his business and, and just kept winning and winning and winning. And to me, he was the ultimate professional and he wasn't, he, he, he didn't, wasn't trying to win a popularity contest. I also liked that. He was a sportsman, but it was all very 
clear and purposeful in his mind. And and do you have a relationship with him? Do you ever touch base with him? Are you going to sit and do thirteen hours of interviews? Well, we've done a lot. I've done a lot of interviews with him. I, I haven't counted the hours, but I, I, he's been great about the book, and I've called him many times to talk about different parts of his career and. So yeah, I mean, we just have a good respectful relationship as journalist and player, and and have so have, that's been the case for oh, going back to the early mid '90s. And do you have a moment where you introduced yourself to him when he was like you know 17 years old? I mean, was there a moment where he sort of got on your radar and no, in I that think special it was, way? I, I think it was gradual. It, it, I started to interview him. I didn't do my first interview with him until 92, but I got to know him better and better. And by 96, you know, we was, I, I was starting to do more and more by then. And so over the second, la latter stages of his career was when I knew him best, and it continued. I continued to do a lot of interviews with him post-career, during his senior years on the Courier Tour. And He's so a very they're, reclusive they're, guy, man. Well, but he's, you know, if he trusts you, and I, we have a lot of mutual respect, and he trusts me, and I, I, I admire him, and I think it's, it's a good, it's a very good journalist-player relationship. That's terrific. Um, do you know what the name of the book is going to be? Not yet. That has to be decided in the next, probably in the next month or so. All right, but well, it will be a career retrospective. That's, that's the point of it, to sort of put that, put it in perspective, and, and it gets back to what you said earlier in the podcast. People too, main purpose of the book to me is that people should not forget how great he was and that it gets obscured because of this era of, the, of these great champions. Do you know how many Grand Slams you've attended? Uh, I haven't counted them lately, but I, and you know, I, it, but Wimbledon, I've attended all but three since 65, over 50 Wimbledons, over 50 US, uh, uh, so over 100 there, and then 30, Eight franchise. So I think we're looking in a couple of Australian, about 100 and over 140. That's not bad. Yeah. Not a bad record. <laughs> Moving into our fourth set, this is what we call the 10 ball scramble. We're going to go quick. We don't do a deep dive. I say it, you say what comes in your mind. You ready? Sure. Favorite tournament? Wimbledon. Favorite city? New York. Favorite writer that's not you? Can it be a non-tennis writer? Favorite writer that's Pete, not you? Pete Hamill. Favorite tennis writer that's not you? Herbert Warren Wind, who was, who was deceased, but wrote for The New Yorker. And Bud Collins? Yes, you're right, of course, but you asked me to, you wanted no, no, a quick... No, no. But Bud Collins, uh, Bud of Collins, course, yeah. of course. Magical, magical. Um, favorite tennis periodical? Well, the magazine that I worked for, World Tennis Magazine, I was there for 17 years, and I, we were, it was considered the Bible. That, that would be my favorite. Um, greatest forehand? At, at one, it, it's a very close call to me between Federer and Nadal. And in my book on the greatest matches, I gave it to Federer. In the end, it's, it's almost a tie, but I think Federer, some of the things that he can do aggressively from inside the court, and I don't think it's as great as it w once was, by the way. But the primetime Federer, I think I'd still give it to him. Greatest backhand? Uh, Novak Djokovic. Serve? Pete Sampras. Volleys? Uh, volleys, over, probably, I'd break it down to forehand and backhand, but I'd probably give it overall package to Edberg. And let's go, and, and yeah, great volleys. Yeah. <laughs> what about um, on the women's side, same thing, forehand? Forehand. That's, that's a tougher call. It's not as I would give it to Steffi Graf. Backhand. 
I'd give it to Chrissy Everett because I think it's the soundest two-hander I've ever seen. Serve? Serve Serena Williams, hands be, down. Right? Yeah, and, First and second. And volleys. Volleys. Uh, Billie Jean King, I think, the, if I take the package. With, with Martina right there. Yeah, Martina's right there, absolutely. I mean, Martina had an incredible backhand volley. I just, it, it, it'd be a close call. Moving into our fifth and final set, this is what we call king of the court. Generally speaking, we'd, we'd say to our guests, uh, if you could be the king and just scepter swing a change, what would it be? I, I'm curious if there's anything regarding the media and coverage and chains of command. Well, I think, I think that most people in the media wish that they, they, the golfers probably give the, the press a bit, there's a bit more access. I think some of the top players, and I understand it, they are so inundated in time-wise, but I think that greater accessibility of the leading players would help. For, for the print media I'm talking about, not, not TV, because they are very accessible to the TV uh, networks. Have some of the lousy writers or some of the more uh, unsophisticated writers impacted the access by doing a bad job? in press conferences, asking stupid stuff? You could argue that. I think it's unfortunate because they're, they're, they're such a small minority. I think most of the people that I know, that I see, that I, that I uh, mingle with on a daily basis at majors are, are, are very uh, well-versed and know what they're talking about. And it's too bad that, that, that a few people in the press conference who maybe don't know much about tennis can give a misleading impression to players and, and give us a bad name. How does that happen that, you know, the, the tabloidy or sort of idiotic... It's hard to control it. It's hard to control it. Yeah, I mean, it's and, and, and you, it, it's hard for some of these uh, tournaments to really justify turning down certain outlets when they're going to provide a certain amount of coverage. But you, you wish that some of, the, some of those journalists would be a, a more professional. Steve Flink, thank you for joining us. I didn't quite realize your only job for your whole life has been writing about tennis. Um, that's incredible. Well, I, it's, it is incredible and it's fortunate, because, but that I had the passion for it from a young age and that I was able to follow it step by step. And, and I also came along during the tennis boom, when you think about it, to be starting your first full-time job in 74 and during this era of, of Connorsborg, Everett. I mean, it, the game exploded. McEnroe coming along a few years later. It, it was the ideal time to be breaking into tennis journalism. Incredible. Um, have a terrific rest of your weekend, and uh, we will see you down the road. My man, you're released. Well, thank you, Craig. I enjoyed it. Thank you to everyone for listening. If you want to help support Under Review and hear the Kafelnikov interview, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash underreviewtennis. Beyond these additional episodes, there's a ton of great perks, including a spot in the Invesco series where you can join a clinic with Hall of Famers and legends like Yevgeny, Jim Courier, Mats Volander, and Todd Martin. And if that's not enough, you will get the pleasure of helping to keep the lights on here at Under Review. Thank you to Steve Flink. We are looking forward to reading your Sampras book. Thank you to all the folks at the Hotel Viking and the Tennis Hall of Fame. If you haven't been, you really should go. It's a great experience. Thank you to Patreon supporter Kevin Gammon. We really do appreciate your support. If you like what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And tell your friends. 
We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. We also love hearing from you, so if you have a topic you want explored or a person you want to hear from, please let us know. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft, and our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll be back next time with more of the most interesting voices in the sport. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released. Released.